Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. This podcast comes to you in affiliation with the North American Society for Sport History, promoting the academic study and research of sport around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. For this episode, my guest is John Matthew Smith, Assistant Professor of History at Georgia Tech University in Atlanta. We are discussing his new book, just out from the University of Illinois Press, a few months ago at the end of 2013. The title of the book is The Sons of Westwood, John Wooden, UCLA, and the Dynasty that Changed College Basketball. The UCLA men's basketball teams of the 1960s and 70s were one of the most dominant dynasties in sports history. And the team's coach, John Wooden, became a legend of U.S. sports, not only for his record of wins and championships, but also for his character and coaching principles. But as Johnny Smith explains in our interview, his book is not a biography of Wooden, nor is it a simple account of this historic team. Instead, Johnny uses the story of the dynasty to look at the growth of Southern California in the post-war period, the political unrest on university campuses in the 1960s, and the emergence of college basketball as one of the most popular attractions in American sports culture. In Johnny's hands, the UCLA Bruins, under Coach Wooden, are not just a team for the record books. Instead, these teams offer a microcosm of this important period in contemporary U.S. history. And, as he points out, the dynasty does make for a great story. Here's my interview with Johnny Smith. My guest this week on New Books in Sports is Johnny Smith. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Typically on the podcast, we start the interview by asking uh, the guest to say a few words of introduction. So can you tell us about, uh, tell us about yourself, your interests in history and basketball, and, uh, and maybe what led you to write this book about John Wooden? Sure. Um, well, um, going back to my undergraduate years, I was a history major, and I went to Michigan State for my bachelor's degree. And I had the opportunity to take a history class on the history of sports in America. I had no idea that this was a class to be offered at a university. And it was incredibly fun. And I was thinking about um, being an educator and being a writer. Um, before I thought about being a professional historian and teaching at a university, I actually considered being a sports writer or a sports broadcaster. Uh, but at any rate, after taking that class, I realized that historians study sports as a serious subject matter, because sports are a window of understanding uh, change over time, change in American society, change in American culture, change in politics. And so when I was an undergraduate, that's when I decided I really wanted to study the intersection of American culture and sports. 
And so I went on to graduate school. I got a master's degree at Western Michigan and a PhD at Purdue. And when I was at Purdue, I uh, studied under Randy Roberts, who has uh, had a very successful career writing about the history of sports. And so when I was working under uh, Randy's guidance, I was thinking about different topics. And I wanted to write a book about, um, about John Wooden. And the reason was not that I was so much interested in his biography from his childhood to um, his passing, um, but I was really interested in how John Wooden became a cultural icon. I mean, why is it that this man who was so successful was, has been so celebrated in our culture? Long after he retired, uh, people would talk about what John Wooden meant to them. You know, high school coaches would adopt his teaching methods and coaching methods. Business leaders would cite him in board meetings. And so he had this very important place in our culture. At the same time, though, I, I didn't want to write a book that was just uh, a narrative describing you know, why Wooden was so successful as a coach, you know, not just, I didn't want to write a book that was just about his practices and the championship games. I wanted to go beyond the court. And what I, what I saw in under, in studying the dynasty and studying UCLA in the sixties and seventies was an opportunity to examine the relationship between college athletics and college protest. So the book really centers, I think, on themes. One is the rise of John Wooden as a cultural icon, how he became the Wizard of Westwood and what that meant. And secondly, the commercialization of the sport, how the UCLA Bruins' success helped shape college basketball into a national phenomenon, into a big business. And third, that relationship between the protest of the 60s and 70s, the civil rights movement, the free speech movement, uh, campus unrest, and college athletes who were becoming more politically active during the 60s and 70s. So you mentioned that you worked at Purdue with uh, Randy Roberts, and and you uh, mentioned your own interest in becoming a sports journalist. And uh, so we've had Randy on the podcast before a couple of times to talk about his books. And uh, uh, I don't want to ask you about about working with Randy as a historian. I want to ask you about working with Randy as a writer, because something that really mm-hmm. strikes me about his his books is that he's an academic historian who really uh, pays a lot of attention to uh, to narrative and to the craft of writing. And I want to ask you about what what it was like working under his tutelage? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I'm proud to say that Randy is not only the most influential mentor I've had, but also has become a very good friend of mine. And we had a a good working relationship. And we often talk, you know, now uh, we're writing a book together. And I'll probably talk about that later. But anyhow, when I came to Purdue, I could imagine the kind of writer I wanted to be. You know, I was very interested myself in being a narrative historian. That's one of the reasons why I went to Purdue to work with Randy. But I didn't have the tool set yet. I didn't actually understand the craft of conceptualizing a story, conceptualizing a chapter. You know, how do you create a narrative arc? But I learned a lot of that from Randy and studying other writers who had a similar approach to his. And that's actually one of the other reasons I wanted to write this book about the UCLA dynasty. It's a, it's a micro-history, right? It covers roughly a period of 1960 to 1975, you know, for the most part. It's that 15-year window. Um, so it's a story of the rise of UCLA um, as a Goliath in college basketball. And so I saw a great story, um, a story that would help me explain the changes 
in the sport, the changes on America's campuses, the changes with Wooden and his relationships with the players. And so Randy and I talked about how to construct a story, what kinds of sources you use, what you think about in terms of the details to not only describe the past, but to recreate the past. So one of the things that was really important to me was to recreate the pulse of the UCLA campus. So to do that, as a historian, I used certain kinds of sources. I interviewed people. I asked them about, you know, what it was like to be at UCLA during that time. I looked at every single newspaper of the Daily Bruin uh, that overlapped the years of UCLA's championships so I could understand what was happening on a day-to-day basis on the campus, what the players would have been exposed to, who was coming to the university to give speeches, when were there demonstrations, when the basketball tickets were being sold. I wanted to be able to know all of those details so I could reconstruct the past, take the reader back to the 1960s and the 1970s so they wouldn't just read about the history of UCLA basketball, but that they would actually experience the history of UCLA basketball. And a lot of that I learned from Randy. It's a skill that I continue to work on, and I enjoy it because it's a form of storytelling. Narrative history is a form of storytelling. And I think of myself as a storyteller uh, when I write and when I teach in the classroom. Well, let's look at the book, Johnny, and uh, and we'll start with the background of, of John Wooden. And uh, so can you tell us about his background, where he came from, his family, and, and then how this shaped his character and his coaching? When I think about John Wooden... I think about a man who is born and raised in South Central Indiana. You know, he was born in 1910 in a tiny town called Hall, moved to Centerton, and eventually his family moved to Martinsville. Um, And his life was formed around a trinity of family, God, and basketball. Those were the three most powerful influences in his life. You know, his father played a pivotal role in his life. Um, He was a man who believed in principles. You know, Joshua Wooden um, taught his sons what he called the two sets of three. And the first set of threes uh, were principles of integrity. And he said, never lie, never cheat, never steal. And the second set of threes was a reminder of how to handle adversity. And he said, don't whine, don't complain, don't make excuses. What mattered to Joshua Wooden what he wanted his sons to learn was character, doing the right thing. So growing up on the farm, what John wouldn't learn was the importance of discipline and industriousness and teamwork, right? Working with his brothers, working with his fathers. And those values were reinforced when he learned basketball, right? Those same values mattered when he was playing the game, when he was coaching, right? He believed in, in those old-fashioned traditional values. And um, John Wooden's dad um, read the Bible to his sons every night. You know, and, and Wooden's dad, John Wooden would later describe his father as someone who was caring, he was gentle, but he wasn't someone who was particularly warm. He loved his sons, and he expressed that love not necessarily in lots of hugs, but more in teaching, in lessons, in reading the Bible to them every night. So there was... While his father was caring and kind, um, he wasn't necessarily a very, um, he wasn't close 
to his son, right? And so later on, when John Wooden's players in the 60s and 70s talked about Coach Wooden, they often said that he could be cold, that he could be distant, right? That, um, you know, he wasn't someone you could get close to. And um, so you could see that some of that uh, relationship with his own father affected the relationships he had with the men that he called his boys, his players. And so um, growing up in Indiana, spending time with his father, learning the sport in Martinsville, that all had a profound impact on him. I want to ask Johnny about uh, a point you make later when you write of Wooden's move to UCLA and, and connecting with this idea of his character and the values that he learns in, in rural Indiana. Mm-hmm. You write that his his popularity at UCLA was shaped by cultural geography. So what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, okay, so when you think about post-war Southern California, it's a region that is shaped by migration. During World War II, you have many Americans who are moving from the heartland to Southern California. So these are people who come from places like Indiana, John Wooden's home state, Illinois, Oklahoma, Kansas. And many of those people who come to uh, Southern California, that they settle there, they share uh, the same perspective that Wooden does about the world. They are more conservative. They hold traditional views about religion and politics and society. And so when I say that Wooden's uh, popularity was shaped by cultural geography, what I'm saying is that to understand how Southern California was transformed by this migration that occurred during and after World War II. So this was still a, um, how to say it, the idea that we have now of Southern California as being a more liberal culture, this didn't apply back in the in the late 40s when John Wooden uh, arrived and into the 50s. Yeah, and, you know, California, right, you think of it, it's a huge state. It's a very diverse state with diverse people, with different backgrounds, different political uh, orientations. And what's happening between, say, post-World War II and through the 60s is you have this migration of, of people who have these conservative viewpoints. Right Now, of course, there are pockets of uh, more liberal attitudes. But Southern California and UCLA is different than, say, the Bay Area, Northern California in the 60s. You know, we think of the University of California at Berkeley, and it's a Bay Area where it has people who are um, more middle class and working class, and they are moving towards social action in ways that aren't occurring at UCLA. You know, UCLA is more of a commuter campus in the 50s and 60s. So one of the things that I noticed about UCLA's political culture is that the student body wasn't staying on campus and protesting and organizing the way that they were at Berkeley. You know, the students would drive off to Santa Monica or, you know, the Palisades or wherever they lived, wherever they had an apartment, or perhaps wherever their parents lived. And so some of those students... They did not become integrated into the political culture at UCLA, one that was not as deep or as strong or perhaps as active as it was in Berkeley. But perhaps those students, they went home and they continued to be under the supervision of their parents, right? They lived at home, and so, you know, they were not challenging any boundaries in the way that many of the students were at Berkeley. So there's some differences in region, in campus culture um, that shaped the way that students viewed social movements 
And um, I think that's important to understand what happens over the course of the 60s at UCLA and how some of Wooden's players become engaged in that world of uh, protest in Southern California. I want to ask some more about uh, UCLA as an institution because uh, when Wooden was hired by UCLA in, in 1948, this was by no means a, a highly desired job for a, for a basketball coach. And, and really the, the university itself was uh, in some ways it's kind of establishing itself and, and, uh, and what it would be in Southern California. So can you talk about how UCLA looked in, in the late 40s and in the 1950s when Wooden arrived? Yes. You know, one of the things I think that's important to understand is that what John Wooden does in building this dynasty is build a national reputation for UCLA. When people thought about the University of California in the 1960s, the mid-1960s forward, they thought about protest. They thought about free speech. But when people thought about UCLA, the first thing they often thought about was basketball. Even though it was an outstanding research institution um, by the mid-1960s, a rapidly expanding university, but basketball was at the forefront of the national consciousness because of Wooden's success. But as you said, it wasn't always that way. When he arrived at UCLA in 1948, it was you know a provincial college. It was often referred to as the Southern Branch or the Los Angeles Branch or the University of California. So to imagine that someday the Los Angeles Branch of the University of California would become this basketball powerhouse, the very center of college basketball, was unthinkable. You know, Wooden arrives and he's dealing with players who aren't very good, they're not well uh, trained in, in the fundamentals of the game. And he's frustrated. You know, he does not imagine that success is going to come to him at UCLA. You know, in the late 40s and early 50s, schools from the Big Ten and the Midwest, they called on him. They wanted to bring him back. He seriously considered it. But because he was a man who firmly believed in the ideal of loyalty, ultimately he stayed. But, you know, it was a struggle. It was not easy. UCLA basketball had only one tradition when he arrived, and that tradition was losing. So thinking about Wooden's arrival on uh, at UCLA, uh, you also write about um, the chancellor of the university at the time, Franklin Murphy, and, and mm-hmm. his plan for the university. So, so he had ambitions for UCLA's rise as an athletic institution, uh, as, uh, or excuse me, as an academic institution, and he saw athletics as a key part of it. So can you talk about that? Yes, uh, Murphy certainly saw that building this reputation uh, that I talked about a moment ago would be would required having a successful athletic program. He was at the University of Kansas, uh, Franklin Murphy, before he came to UCLA. And in the mid-1950s, the University of Kansas, which had a, an excellent uh, basketball coach, uh, Fog Allen, they were successful because of really one player, Wilt Chamberlain, right? Wilt Chamberlain is from Philadelphia for a variety of reasons I won't get into now. He decides to go to the University of Kansas, right? Franklin Murphy sees this, what it does. You know, Chamberlain takes the Kansas Jayhawks to the championship, and it brought a lot of notoriety to the University of Kansas. It brought a lot of media attention that the university probably would not have received otherwise. And so Murphy recognizes that 
basketball, a successful basketball program can help make the university more visible. And one of the stories I tell in the book is how when he arrived at UCLA as chancellor, he was frustrated because when the secretaries would answer the phone, they would say, University of California, Los Angeles branch. And he did not want the secretaries to answer the phone that way. What he wanted them to say was UCLA. Those four letters, he wanted those four letters to be as well-known as MIT, right? And so the part of building up the reputation for UCLA was having a successful basketball program. So he was committed to building up an athletics department that would be nationally known. And certainly when J.D. Morgan became athletic director, he found an athletic, an athletic director who shared his commitment to building up uh, the Athens at athletics. Uh, Johnny, you describe uh, Wooden's coaching methods and, and particularly his ordering of, of practices. And, and you talk mm-hmm. about this in the book as something that was key to the UCLA team's success over the years, especially in the early going. And in credit to you as a writer, uh, this is something, this was really an interesting part of the book. I really enjoyed reading about how uh, Wooden, Wooden sets up his practices. So can you talk about what John Wooden did in his, in his practice sessions? Well, Wooden's philosophy about practice as a coach was built on preparation. So he spent as much time preparing for practice as running practice. He would tell his secretary, I want the door shut. I don't want any interruptions, no phone calls, don't let anyone knock on the door. And he and his assistants would plan the drills for practice by the minute. And he did not want the players ever to be idle. You know, he was a firm believer in conditioning, but he wasn't a coach who wanted to have his players climb the steps or just run sprints at the end of practice. He wanted them moving all the time. So when he, when he prepared for practice and he organized the drills, he didn't want any drill to last longer than, say, four minutes because he wanted to make sure that the players were always stimulated. They were always active. They were never bored with a drill. It never became redundant. He wanted to keep them moving. And so Wooden, who was obsessed with details, organized his practices, and he, and he wrote them out in pencil on these three-by-five three by index cards. Every drill was written, and for Wooden, you know, you could hear him in practice. He would give instructions in these little clips, right? So he would say things like, you know, be quick, but don't hurry, right? You know, or Move your feet, move your feet. Everything was a short command, right? It was something that could be reinforced. And the thing is, is that Wooden, in many ways, was a lot like Vince Lombardi. You know, they both believed in repetition. There was not an elaborate offensive system that Wooden ran. But what he wanted the players to learn was to execute with efficiency. And his philosophy was that if we could master the fundamentals, be in the best condition possible, better than any other team, that we were going to have an advantage. Um, because it, didn't, it would not matter if the other team knew what we were going to run because we were so good at it. And, you know, by 1964, when UCLA wins its first national championship, no one could stop them, even though they knew what was coming. So your book does describe uh, Wooden's early success in turning this this team around that had been a losing team, turning them into a national power. As you say, uh, they win the national championship in 1964, again in 1965. And then in the fall of 1965, a, a new player, Lou Elsinder, uh, joins UCLA. And, and I would say this is probably the 
the dramatic core of the book, uh, looking at this relationship between John Wooden and Lou Elsinder. So, so can you tell us about young Lou Elsinder, his background and, and his arrival at UCLA? I'd say you're right. I think it is the dramatic core of the book. You know, Elsinder changes so much in college basketball. When Elsinder, Elsinder comes of age uh, in New York City. You know, he lives in Manhattan. He spends a lot of his free time in Harlem, you know, which was this vibrant center of black culture. And it's those two worlds that shape him, right? The, the world of basketball. You know, he goes to a private Catholic school. He becomes a celebrity. Uh, when he's a teenager, he's featured in national magazines, um, like Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, I think the Saturday Evening Post, and a bunch of others. And at the same time, you know, when, when Alcindor is not in school, when he's in Harlem, he's spending time with other black teenagers, other black young men. You know, he sees Harlem in its deterioration, right? You know, he sees that there's discrimination and there's poverty. And there are all these problems that can't be solved by integration. And Alcindor actually experiences firsthand, firsthand the Harlem race riots of 1964. And in the aftermath of those race riots, Martin Luther King comes to Harlem. And Alcindor, who covered this press, King's press conference for a local youth action newspaper, he listens to Martin Luther King advocating that, you know, black people turn the other cheek, that they embrace nonviolence. And Alcindor had grown tired of this message. You know, he'd been following the civil rights movement as a young man, watching how uh, black Christian churches had been bombed in the South. He had gone to Jim Crow, North Carolina in 1962. You know, he could see the signs, the Jim Crow signs, you know, whites only, colored only. He had experienced segregation in the South. He had followed it on television. He talked about it with his parents. And, you know, he was horrified by the racial violence and how there never seemed to be anyone who stood up for black people, who protected them. You know, he, so he became frustrated with black Christian ministers like Dr. King, who advocated nonviolence and patience, and white liberals who echoed the same message. And so after that race riot in Harlem in 1964, Alcindor, in his mind, commits to a more militant position. He starts to uh, listen to the speeches of Malcolm X. He reads Malcolm X's autobiography. And gradually, Alcindor is going to gravitate toward a position of black independence, a rejection of integration as the ultimate goal in the civil rights struggle. And he embraces black power which was an emphasis on racial pride and self-determination. So he's going through this, this internal change that is shaped by what's happening in his world, what's happening in Harlem, what's happening in New York, what's happening in the South. So his attitudes about race are evolving. His own political consciousness is evolving. Now, the public doesn't know about this Lewell Cinder. What the public knows in 1965 is that he's the most famous teenage basketball player since Wilt Chamberlain. He can play basketball at any college he chooses. There are schools in the South that were willing to desegregate if Lou Alcindor would come play. Because Lou Alcindor was so good that people expected 
that whoever he chose to play for, that team would win three straight championships and probably would not lose a game. I think when he was at Power Memorial, uh, his overall record was like 71-1. and one. I know for sure he only lost one game. Cool record. Yeah, and this is something in your book you really do a good job in bringing out just how extraordinary – uh, Al Cinder was as a player, you know, and I have to admit when I was, when I was a kid watching Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in his later years with the Los Angeles Lakers and so in the mm-hmm. late seventies and eighties, my friends and I would joke about this old guy who's, you know, balding and he was the last guy to run up and down the court. But, you know, to, to read about young Lou Al Cinder, he was just extraordinary, extraordinary player. Absolutely. I mean, it's, by the time he gets to UCLA, he's about seven foot, seven foot one. And he's very agile for a big man. He runs the floor well. Um, that was important because even though when they they were running a half-court offense, it was built around him in the post, you know, Wooden's teams were known for running the fast break. And so Al Cinder, who was an excellent rebounder, could throw a good outlet pass, not as good as Walton at that. But, um, you know, he would fire those outlet passes, and he'd have to run, and he would finish. And, you know, he was graceful uh, near the basket. After 1967... You know, UCLA has won another national championship. Alcindor's first. They're 30-0. and um, There is a lot of concern among college basketball coaches that Alcindor is so good that he's going to turn the game into a farce. Mm-hmm. And so one of the changes that occurs after Alcindor's first varsity season is that the dunk is banned. People start to refer to this as the Alcindor rule. But here you have a guy who is so good, so dominant, The coaches didn't think that they would stand a chance if they would allow to have a system where Alcindor could dump the ball, where UCLA could throw the ball to him in the post, he could pivot and slam it home, because no one could stop that move. And so it's it's illustrative, I think, of just how good he was and the impact he had on college basketball on the court. You make the point also in talking about Al Cinder as a player that uh, that he was one of those players that that you find throughout the history of sport who was just so dominant and and I think of somebody say like Goretzky or or Messi today that uh, mm-hmm. he's so dominant that his performances almost become boring. Yes, and in fact, by his senior year in 1969, he'd become a little bored with basketball. I remember reading. Uh, Articles, you know, game summaries, and one that stood out with Rob was uh, Robert Lipsight of the New York Times. And Lipsight said, "Yeah, Cinder is great. You know, he's scoring as many points as he always does. He's rebounding, but he looks like he's not putting in the same effort. Um, that he's not as interested. That he's not as engaged. That the game has become too easy for him. And this is also a frustration that many of Alcindor's teammates had. That other players throughout the dynasty had. That." It was hard to get up for games we were always winning. I mean, in 1967 and 1968, Alcindor's teams are beating their opponents by an average of 30 points a game. I mean, the game was, they made it look easy. That's not to say it was easy. But then the criticism was, that here you have this black man who isn't putting out his best effort. That he made it look so easy that perhaps he wasn't working that hard that he wasn't putting out the effort, that he was lazy. And these were stereotypes of, of black men in general, and that you would often read about in basketball. And there was a common complaint, certainly, of, of Alcindor when he was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar into the 1970s, um, when many critics were raising the question of whether or not there were, you know, the black basketball players in the NBA, uh, whether or not they put out their best effort. 
And so this was an issue that he would struggle with and would become a point of contention in the media of whether or not he was working really hard. Down to down to my friends and me in the uh, in the 1980s complaining about <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yeah. So I want to ask about uh, when Al Cinder is at UCLA, not as a player, but uh, something you talk about is is how black players at UCLA with Al Cinder as, as the leading figure, they mm-hmm. begin to express their da- dissatisfaction with, with the university and also with Wooden. Right. Yeah, it's, it, in some ways it's um, a complicated relationship, right? Here you have black players, who many of whom came from out of state. You know, Al Cinder is from New York. Walt Hazard, who was the, the great black star in the first championship team, had come all the way from Philadelphia. Mike Warren had come from South Bend, Indiana. Lucius Allen had come from Kansas City. So you have black players who have come a great distance. And many of them, like Alcindor, had this expectation that UCLA was a liberal place, right? And that UCLA would be this racial paradise. That life in Southern California would just be a life of fun in the sun. That Alcindor could escape the, the problems of Harlem, you know, the, the, the poverty, the discrimination, the racial violence, all of that he could leave behind. But what he found was that UCLA, that in Southern California, there was racism there too. And, you know, when he's there, he hears students on campus who whisper and call him the N-word. You know, he hears them. They might not know it, but he hears them. He certainly hears fans at Cal Berkeley who shout the N-word at him. Um, he was stopped by police. He was uh, ridiculed by people on campus, uh, college students, because he was dating a white girl at one point. And so in the midst of all of this, he's on this integrated team. But he doesn't look at integration as a measurement of equality. Now, one of the reasons he went to UCLA was because UCLA had a tradition of successful black athletes. Uh, Jackie Robinson went to UCLA. Rayford Johnson, the great decathlete, went to UCLA. And not only did UCLA have these iconic African-American athletes who were successful there, but in the 1950s, they had three student body presidents who were black, and one of whom was Rayford Johnson. So when Alcindor, you know, learned about this, he saw Rayford Johnson, he thought, you know, that's, that's what the experience I want. I want to be able to go to UCLA, succeed in athletics like, like Rayford Johnson, get an education like Rayford Johnson, and be treated as a human being, to be treated as a man. And so when Alcindor's considering all these different schools, that's one of the lures of going to UCLA. But it was also about going to UCLA to play for Coach Wooden. One of the things that he respected about Coach Wooden was the way he treated him as a human being. That he didn't see him just as a representation of dollar signs and championships. That he treated him as a person. You know, they weren't particularly close during their time together in the late 1960s. But in the conversations they did have, Alcindor and Wooden did talk about race. And, you know, Wooden, who was someone who loved to read, he loved poetry, he loved history and, and all kinds of literature, um, he read the works of Ralph Ellison, um, Richard Wright. And, you know, Wooden tried to understand this black consciousness in the 1960s. He tried to understand the perspective of young black men. But it was difficult. You know, Wooden came of age in the 1920s when the KKK was prominent in Indiana. 
you know, a time of segregation. And so wooden comes from a different place in time, and it's difficult for them to connect about these social and political and racial issues. And so there were sometimes complaints that although UCLA was able to recruit these black athletes, some of them became frustrated by their experience, that wooden didn't understand them, or that other teammates, their white teammates didn't understand them, and that the student body, which was overwhelmingly white, didn't make civil rights a priority. Now, that's not to say that there weren't students who were civil rights activists at UCLA. There certainly were. Um, but that did not always mean that it was easy for the black players or the black students to build relationships with those students. One of the other issues that comes up, Johnny, in your, in your treatment of this relationship of Al Sender and Wooden, and this is really within the confines of the team, is that uh, Wooden often compromised his rules for the team for his individual star. And, uh, and this is something that other players on the team noticed, that you know, Wooden had this uh, very ordered, uh, very rule-bound regimen for the running of the basketball team. And yet when Lou Alcindor comes, other players notice, well, he, he is getting different treatment. So, so what is your reading of that? Was this a, a, a double standard? Was this hypocrisy as, as some of Wooden's own players charged? Did you get a mm-hmm. sense of how Wooden um, perhaps justified it for himself that he was doing this? That's a great question. So the first thing I think people need to understand is as Alcindor develops a political identity, as he begins to see himself as more than a basketball player, he sees a platform. And in 1967-68, there's this movement that would be described as the revolt of the black athletes, where black athletes became more politically active in civil rights, in black power, in demonstrations. And Alcindor, at one point in late 1967, is debating whether or not he should boycott the Olympic Games in a protest movement that was organized by Harry Edwards and some other black athletes from San Jose State. Now, ultimately, Alcindor decides he's not going to play in the Olympics, but he's not really going to join any boycott, right? It's an individual choice. And he makes, you know, all sorts of justifications for this. He says that he's you know, trying to demonstrate against racism, um, to make the point that, you know, black athletes are exploited. He says that it would affect his time in school because UCLA wasn't a quarter system, so he would miss class, which would delay graduation, and, you know, his education was very important to him. So that's important to understand in this conversation, is the way Alcindor sees himself as a man, as an activist, and the racial politics. So back to your question, when we think about Alcindor challenging Wooden's rules, Wooden had all sorts of rules. He had rules about curfew. He had rules about having visitors in your hotel room, which meant women, on the road. He had rules about swearing, about smoking, and certainly he had rules about hair length. Players were supposed to have their hair cut short. And so Wooden has all these rules. He has rules about how you're supposed to dress. You're supposed to wear a coat and tie when you're on the road. But gradually, Alcindor and Mike Warren and Lucius Allen, his black teammates, they chip away at these rules. And in a way, they recognize that they can get away with it. They can get away with it because they're so important to the team's success. Wooden is not going to challenge Alcindor 
And I think it's really for a couple of reasons. Number one is that I think Wooden realizes fighting with Alcindor about the growing length of his afro is not a battle he wants to have. Number The reason for that is that if a player could come to him and explain that growing his hair or his sideburns or dressing a certain way was a part of their cultural identity, he would accept it. However, this was also a time when other coaches were less accepting of such uh, explanations about hair length and violating team rules. There were other coaches, white coaches, who had black players who challenged their authority in all sorts of ways, and it led to coaches being fired. It led to black players boycotting team activities, practice, games. It led to more media scrutiny. And so it created a problem. And Wooden is a basketball coach. And gradually what happens to Wooden is that as his teams become more successful, and as some of his players, not all, but a few, select few, become more politically active, he seeds his authority in some small ways. Um, but what I think is interesting is when we study the 60s and 70s, and we see that Wooden let some of his players get away with longer hair or cursing um, or whatever the case may be, he would not have tolerated those things in the 50s. You know, the culture in the 50s is that players were not going to challenge a coach's authority in any political way or any openly defiant way. But in the 60s, you know, when it becomes kind of a rite of passage to challenge authority, it's occurring uh, more frequently, and Wooden is aware of that. And so he, he wisely chooses his battles for the sake of team unity and uh, certainly, you know, for the sake of winning. Mm-hmm. So, Johnny, we're almost out of time, and uh, I want to ask you a question about uh, uh, the release of your book. And uh, we were talking about this before the interview. Uh, you have the, uh, I would say, perhaps the misfortune, and, and other academic writers have had this happen as well, that uh, at the same time your uh, book about John Wooden in UCLA has come out, uh, another biography of Wooden, uh, written by someone who's you know, from one of the major sports media uh, corporations, has also published a biography of Wooden. And uh, I want to ask about your view on that as, as an academic historian um, uh, working on a project simultaneously with someone uh, who's in journalism and, and uh, what you think your book offers uh, that, uh, that the other book doesn't. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, when I started this project, um, you know, I started writing and I had learned that Seth Davis was also writing a biography of Wooden. And I would say first, to be clear, I don't think of my book as a biography of Wooden. It's uh, not a book that spans his whole life. It's very much focused on the dynasty here. So I was interested in writing a history of the UCLA dynasty with Wooden at the center of that story. Um, but Seth Davis's book, which I have uh, recently skimmed, is a, is a full portrait of John Wooden's life. Um, and our approaches are different. The approaches of journalists and historians are different when they write about sports. Davis's book, uh, like many journalists, relies heavily on interviews. And he had great access to all sorts of people in Wooden's life, former players. Um, I'm not sure how many interviews he did, but I know he, he did more interviews than I did. I did about 25 interviews. I'm almost positive David probably did at least 100. And I, again, I don't know the full number. And, and I think that's illustrative to the point about access. You know, Seth Davis writes for Sports Illustrated, 
uh, writes for SportsIllustrated.com. He's on CBS. Uh, he does a radio show. So in the sports world, he has a reputation, a good reputation. He has credibility, and he has access. He has access to athletes. You know, when uh, John Wooden was still alive in Davis's early career at Sports Illustrated, he was able to interview him numerous times. When I started the project, Coach Wooden was in his late 90s. His uh, health was fading, and so I was never able to interview him. Now, I did interview a number of players that played for Coach Wooden, but when I made requests of uh, Bill Walton and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, those requests for interviews were denied. And a lot of other players did not want to talk to me. They had never heard of me. You know, they didn't know who Johnny Smith was. So one thing that I think journalists have in terms of an advantage is that they have access that they can use for interviews. Now, that said, I also think that our research methods are very different. My book was conceived as a study to examine the relationship between college basketball and American culture and college basketball and American politics. Davis's story um, is very much focused on the sport and John Wooden as the coach. And so many of those interviews are highlighted in quotes. You know, the stories that he has uh, received from his interview subjects. I, on the other hand, try to interpret a variety of sources, primary sources and secondary sources. So not only the interviews that I did, but also going into um, the UCLA archives, examining the chancellor's papers, other kinds of documents that were housed at UCLA so that I could examine the UCLA dynasty in a particular context. What matters to a historian is not only the sports subject, but the particular context that you're studying. So in my book, what you'll see is that there is analysis about Wooden's relationship to American culture in the 60s and 70s, where that's not necessarily a point of emphasis in Seth Davis's uh, biography of Wooden. You know, we talked earlier at the start of the interview about cultural geography, uh, the context of Southern California, the context of student activism at UCLA. You know, that context is not always there in the work of journalists in the way that it is of historians. And I will add that uh, your history is also a very well-written history. This is this was a, a, a good book to read. It was an engaging book to read. I really enjoyed reading it. So I'll ask at the end, though, you'd mentioned you're working on a project with uh, uh, your former advisor, Randy Roberts. What's, what's that project? Randy and I are working on a book about Muhammad Ali. Uh, he's, uh, he's written a number of biographies about boxers, and we decided to focus on the rise of Cassius Clay and how between 1960 and 1965, Cassius Clay becomes Muhammad Ali. And so it's a sport, uh, excuse me, it's a, it's a book that will deal with um, the state of boxing during the early years of the 1960s, a time when the sport was in search of a savior. And Cassius Clay was the self-proclaimed savior. And um, not only that, um, but given my work and interest in racial politics, it'll also focus on Clay's own politics, his political views, his religious transformation, and the controversy surrounding his career. So um, it's not going to be a full biography, but uh, we're really excited about it. We both have started writing, and we've done a lot of the research, and uh, we think it's going to be a good book. You've been listening to an interview with John Matthew Smith about his book, The Sons of Westwood, John Wooden 
UCLA, and the Dynasty That Changed College Basketball, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2013. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from popular music to Russian and Eurasian studies. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.